Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. Welcome everyone to this special kickoff uh, on the Expansive CEO Podcast. Today we are talking with Brad Haynes, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Juncture Wealth Strategies, who um, I am affiliated with through my wealth planning um, firm, X Squared Wealth Planning. And I'm calling this a kickoff because we're going to be talking on a monthly basis um, on the second Friday of every month. We're going to do an episode with Brad to talk about what's happening in the financial markets and you know how you know how he sees what's happening through a lens of being you know from his experience being a CFA that's a chartered financial analyst and an FRM that's a financial risk manager um and this brings a very different perspective than even I bring as a CFP which is a certified financial planner so between us we've got this you know this uh beautiful well of experience on different sides of the financial sector and i think it's really important for people to start to understand um you know all of the listeners to understand what is available out there as far as you know what what kinds of investment strategies exist um but even more than that like why are things happening the way they're happening in our world from a financial perspective? So Brad, please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you. Um, I would love to hear, you know, why you joined Juncture um, in the first place. And, you know, tell us a little bit about where you came from, because I find your background fascinating. So take it. Well, thank you Um, again. Welcome, everybody. This is uh, something that is exciting for me personally. Um, I value Hannah very, very much as a partner. So uh, I think I'm very, very excited to have a monthly touch base about the markets and investment strategies and the like. Um, So just by way of background, I have been managing money for over 30 years uh, in various aspects. I've either been you know, valuing individual investments um, as an analyst or advising clients and high net worth investors and institutional clients um, as an investment counselor or uh, as a direct portfolio manager where I have made the day-to-day trading decisions and strategic decisions. So that's kind of my history of my my experience. Um, I... I, I joined Juncture a seven years ago as a um, as a beautiful transition in life. Mm. Um, I worked for a very large bank. I was one of their top portfolio managers and and assets or investment strategists, uh, where I managed hundreds of millions of dollars. And um, that company merged with another company. And as it happens with large banks. They tend to um, gravitate to the lowest common denominator in terms of what they want to do to serve their clients. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a bad thing. It's just they 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 have so much money under management that they can't 
pursue the cutting edge techniques. They can't pursue the cutting edge technology that is currently available and has right. been developed. We, you know, all the clients have heard about AI and machine learning and, and, you know, um, how to, how to tax loss harvest and all these different things. And if you don't have the technology that will allow you to, to execute upon those, it just goes by the wayside. And unfortunately, almost all large investment institutions have that battle. Yeah. Um, and so when they started to homogenize their portfolios and, and started to talk to me about, hey, we want you to do more sales and relationship management than actually manage money, I, I decided that wasn't what got me out of the bed in the morning. That wasn't going to help me achieve my goals as a career in, in my career. So um, a few years before, Barry Ronimus and Jack Barker um, had joined Juncture. Uh, Barry actually founded the firm uh, 12 years ago now. Jack joined a few years afterwards as a, an estate planning consultant and um, and uh, our tax guru, in-house tax guru. Right. Uh, Jack, Jack Barker is a CPA and a JD and yeah. our, our compliance officer, one of the partners. Yeah, another amazing human. Amazing human, but I find his topics boring. No, <laughs> great guy. He's a huge value-added resource for our clients and for you, Hannah. So mm -hmm. he, he uh, hopefully we'll have him on um, at a certain point in the podcast because he he is he's very very good at what he does. Yeah. Um, so at that point, the firm was at a point where they needed um, some more help on the investment side. So I left. The large bank came and joined uh, Juncture Wealth Strategies at the time, and uh, and then a few years later became a partner and the chief investment officer. So, from that standpoint, it's been a fantastic leap forward in my career and my skill set, um, and it's been a blast. So we've had a great time. Um, educationally, the way I come at investing and the way Juncture has always come at best investing is a little different than most people experience in their in their investor history in their in their mm -hmm. life cycle as an investor um we do look at all the general things that are out there you know the fundamentals we look at the macroeconomic context we but we marry that with some factor analysis some more quantitative methods in a, in 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 exploiting the behavioral biases investors have Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's a lot. And I'm going to explain what that means is basically most investors, whether institutional or individual families or retail investors, um, typically manage money, not necessarily with their brain, but on their, based on their hearts and based on the fear and greed, uh, continuum or so because there's that emotional connection to how we manage money, it opens opportunities for people that are more disciplined to take advantage of that. Yes. Okay. So pause there for just a second. Um, we're going to open this conversation up here because that is so spot on. And I want to kind of share, this is truly one of the reasons why I chose to partner with Juncture. So X Squared Wealth Planning is my firm, uh, my RIA, you know, fiduciary fee only advisory firm and juncture wealth strategies is my 
back office, my support, my investment team. Um, and I chose that for a reason. And it was because I was seeing the investment strategies around me. Any of the other choices were all based on just, you just got to wait it out, like get a diversified portfolio, whatever, either 60, 60% equities, 40% fixed income or 80% equities, 20% or, you know, whatever it was, just pick and stay, just stay put and ride through everything. And when I would be, you know, when I'm the advisor coaching my clients through those tough times, you know, there was, there was a lot of feeling that like, there's nothing to do, right? All there is to do is just to like, like hold your hand and talk you through it and talk through the history of this has happened before it's going to happen again. And when I talked with you, Brad, and actually I'm going to tell this story too, because I think it's really pertinent. When I had talked to other firms, when I was like trying to figure out where I wanted to to land and actually grow my, my business, the way that feels good to my heart, um, the investment management teams would be offended if I asked them, like, what's your process? What are your results? Can you, can you explain to me what you're doing um, and how you're doing it and why, and how much, how much clarity do I get to have as the advisor on the investment process? How much input do I have? And every single other place that I interviewed with, there was, there was a noticeable shift in, in the energy of like, oh, why do, why do you need to know? You're the CFP, you're the planner. You don't need to know that. And I am just not okay with that. Right. I was, I, if I, if I don't feel like the process is transparent and I don't feel comfortable um, that I I can ask any question, how on earth am I supposed to feel comfortable with my clients being in that space? Um, and so when I started talking with Juncture, I had so many questions. Um, Brad, you can maybe, you maybe remember all of the questions. Like, I mean, it was a lot of questions. Um, yeah. I commend you for that because- <laughs> An advisor is a fiduciary for those clients. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be asking those questions. Yeah. How are you supposed to fulfill your fiduciary duty without asking those questions? Yeah, exactly. And when you came back to me, when it, every single question was like, thank you for asking that question. Let me like formulate the answer and I will come back to you. Right. And then you answered every single question I had about how the process worked, why you make the decisions that you make, um, what kinds of clients it works for. What if we want to do this other thing? Is that okay? Is that not okay? Um, it just, every single question I ever had, you answered with full transparency and integrity. Um, and that was one of, one of the main factors for me in, um, choosing, you know, I truly feel like I, I chose you, you know, you chose me and I chose you and it was completely mutual. Um, yeah, we wanted you way before you wanted us though. <laughs> I mean, we knew like, as soon as we got to know you and start, you started asking these questions, we were like, this is a type of advisor we want to partner with. Mm-hmm. We don't want every advisor out there. We want the best advisors. And so that's who we're trying to affiliate with. And 
you fit that mold. I mean, I've said many times, if I could have 10 Hannahs, that would be a fantastic, that's, that's all I want. That's all I want is 10 Hannahs, you know? So, so you, you do a very, very good job. <laughs> you appreciate, appreciate your partnership. Uh, so. So, so the other piece um, that when we were talking about behavioral finance, so that's where, that's where, when I, even in the other spaces I had been like being able to coach my clients through, okay, you know, there is, there is truth to, you know, if you're not the one selling when there's blood in the streets, the terrible pun that that is, I mean, makes sense. Um, but if, if you're able to be the one that hangs on through that tough period, you will come out on top. So that part is, is legitimate. Right. But then with juncture, we actually have the tools to not only say, okay, we're going to, here's our strategy through the whole, um, you know, coming down process when the market is really falling. And when the proverbial blood in the streets is there, we actually have like cash at the ready. We have instruments at the ready that will then dive back into the market to, you know, let the portfolios recover more quickly. And so it's taking that behavioral like you said, that behavioral finance aspect that, you know, when we take care of our clients and when we keep them really steady in their emotional connection to their money, we can help them take advantage of the natural, um, the natural behavioral process, right. That, that most other investments investors are experiencing. So I want you to I want to come back to your CFA and your FRM and how that connects. Um, and just, I, I want you to tell people also like the, just really briefly about the process of becoming a CFA and becoming an FRM and why that is like a really unique set of um, qualifications that you have that help give you insight into that behavioral finance area. Sure. So the CFA charter is um, what I believe to be the premier designation for managing money, mm-hmm. for analyzing investments, valuing them, combining them together, together in a portfolio to generate a return. Um, there's a little bit of risk management there in terms of the you know cl- putting the portfolio together, but generally it's more of a of a return generating um, designation. And it's the premium. It takes mm-hmm. three years. Um, you have to pass each each year. And each year has a very low pass rate um, overall. So it's a very, very difficult. Uh, you also have to have five years of active experience in the industry. Um, so if you see it, if a client enc- uh, encounters a person that has earned the CFA charter, um, Generally, they are very well versed in what's going on in the markets and investments. So mm-hmm. they can be somewhat uh, trusted with to, to be an expert. Um, right. So the FRM is a, a little unique. Uh, not many people have heard about it. It's very rare on the on the high net worth RIA space where people, individual um, investors will have will will encounter them. Um, generally financial risk management, it, you find those on institutional um, or bank trading desks that manage the risk in the overall portfolio, okay? 
And that's very, very important for people that have a lot of leverage mm -hmm. or like banks. Banks have a right. lot of leverage. So the day-to-day -day volatility and the, and the risk in the structure of the investment can be pretty dramatic for a bank. So they, that's, that's why most of those, most of the FRMs in the world reside on those banks, banks uh, risk management um, areas. Um, I, I earned it because um, the CFA did a fantastic job preparing me to generate return, but I wanted to go a little more in depth because I knew uh, um, risk wasn't just volatility. Right. Okay. And I knew clients didn't define risk as volatility. In fact, uh, they define risk the same way I define risk, which is the probability and severity of a, of a permanent loss of capital. So yeah, in layman's terms, how likely is it that you're going to lose money and never get it back? That's right. <laughs> Basically, that is exactly what it is, right? But, but when investment advisors historically have sat down with clients or investment managers, they've said, well, you know, you had a lot of up and down throughout the year, you know, so this is your level, that's your risk. Well, it's not though, you know, that's not the way clients define risk. And so I intuitively knew just through practicing for a number of years that one, clients didn't define risk that way. And two, there was a whole, there are a whole other dimensions of risk that affect clients. And every crisis that we go through, whether it be, you know, the great recession or whether it was the tech bubble or COVID, there are different risks within the financial markets that come to bear. Um, you know, a great example is if, if people think volatility is risk, um, there was a private investment fund that basically had so little volatility that it was like clipping 10% coupons and, and, and it hardly ever changed uh, until Mr. Madoff went to jail, <laughs> right? I mean, so there was another risk there that mm -hmm. it wasn't volatility. It was, it was another risk. Okay. Right. Um, so I got, I, I got in the FRM, which is again, three year process, three, very, very mathematically difficult. Um, usually only quantitative people with quantitative backgrounds, um, can survive it because it is a survival process. Um, I'm quantitative in nature. So that fit mm -hmm. my, my bailiwick pretty, pretty well. Um, but what it does is it analyzes risks from nine different spe spectrums, you know, from operational risk to structure risk to liquidity risk to volatility, which is a part of it, credit risk, um, interest rate sensitivities, currency risks. There's a lot of different risks that, that are inherent in every asset portfolio, whether it's private assets, publicly traded assets like stocks and bonds. Um, or the like, or a mix of the two. So I earned that because I wanted to bring institutional level management style to high net worth investors. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's why I earned that, that designation as well. So let's go back to, let's tie this back into the behavioral finance aspect. Um, because from, as you know, you know, like 
again, as I said at the beginning, I'm a CFP. I also, so I'm a certified financial planner. I also have an APMA designation. That's an accredited portfolio management advisor and CRPC. So that's a chartered retirement planning counselor. So I, I do, I also have this blend. The APMA is not, is a part of the CFA. I think like we, there's the test, the testing material is, you know, a little bit in that direction. Um, so I, I have that understanding and the CF, the CFP really, um, is that relational, right? Like that, that high level, how do we tie things together? How do we tie these disparate aspects of the investment strategy and the estate planning strategy and the insurance strategy and the, you know, what are your goals strategies? So the investment portion is hugely important, right? It's like one of the main pillars of what a CFP needs to be able to understand and communicate, but I do not have the level of expertise that you have in looking at and understanding and quantifying, right? I can see and I can feel when, you know, like, okay, here's here's what's happening in the markets. I can understand it. I can communicate it, but I do not have that level of like quantitative understanding of when this, when we see these markers, this is the behavioral, you know, in a society wide or even a global, right? When we see these markers, it tends to mean this thing um, from a behavioral, you know, people are going to buy more, people are going to sell more, people are panicking, people are getting excited, right? Can you tell us a little bit more? Do you understand? Do you understand where I'm going? Absolutely. I mean, okay. everything we do is based on um, based on our understanding of how people are going to react in a situation. Mm-hmm. So uh, the strategies we pursue take advantage of behavioral biases. So I'll give you an example. We have a, a, a we have a structured covered call strategy, covered call writing strategy, where we have a stock portfolio. We write or sell calls on those underlying positions. Uh, now, why would we do that? If that kind of caps your upside from a capital appreciation, but you get a nice premium income. Um, so, why is that beneficial? Um, there's a behavioral bias in investors that we always think that volatility is going to be worse than it actually is. Hmm. So we predict that things are going to get more volatile in the future than it has been in the just the past 30 days. And that that um, that bias okay, means that options premiums are more expensive than they should be. Mm -hmm. So what we do is by writing those covered calls is we convert that bias into a cash flow for the client. It's the excess return driver. It's alpha for those investors or listeners who, who understand what alpha is, uh, not many people do. It's just right. means is extra return. Um, right. It's a, there. There's some uh, lingo in there that if it sounds like gobbledygook to you, that's totally fine. Um, and the the bottom line of it is, we are looking at those behavioral aspects in order to capitalize on 
what's all just the trends, right? Capitalize in a different way. Um, And those covered call strategies are actually a relatively, tell me, tell me if this is off base, but my understanding is that it's a relatively safe way to bring in excess cash flow. Yep. I mean, it, it does two things. One, for people who want a higher cash flow income level for their portfolio, it, it does a fantastic job for that as well. Um, but what it does really is it, it, it converts that behavioral issue into a cash flow stream for the client. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's done very, very well. Um, there's a couple of other you know, examples we could talk about, um, but I'll, I'll let you kind of direct me and- Actually- yeah. yeah, no, no, there's, there's, um, we will absolutely get into like technical stuff in the future too. And I, I think that's probably a good, like, this was our little technical piece, um, for this time, because it, it really opens up that, that understanding more that this is what the way juncture looks at things. We look at things from a behavioral finance standpoint in the context of, you know, all of these other factors. Um, so that was my, again, what really drew me to the firm to partner with in the first place is to like, oh, you you are, you are deeply looking, right? There is a depth of knowledge and you're bringing that to high net worth people. And even like, honestly, it, the way that you run the portfolios, we it's not even... You know, we're not talking just about people with 10 to $100 million. We're talking about we can apply these same techniques to portfolios that are 500000 or 200000 right? Like we can apply these same techniques because you have the system down so well. Yeah. I mean, and that's, it, I think that's really special. Yeah. I mean, we try to democratize that institutional level expertise. Right. Um, I mean, I ran money for institutions. So yeah, it, it's it's something that we try to um, search for those, I'm gonna call them drivers for now, mm-hmm. those drivers of return where they're consistent and they're repeatable. Mm-hmm. So we look for strategies or, or way, you know, we look for behavioral biases that we can exploit in a consistent and predictable manner. And that's where we build strategies around using our quantitative tools. So the reason why we marry the two is because if you're too behavioral, you're, you're because everybody's a human, we all have these emotions that fight us, you know, when we're mm-hmm. supposed to be doing one thing, we want to do another. Um, so what our quantitative methods do is force us into that discipline. Mm-hmm. So if myself and the investment team are sitting here and we're analyzing and let's say the market's off 25% like it was last year, you know, we, we have the same, Oh my goodness, we're down a lot. Our poor clients. Um, but that those emotions are tempered because our quantitative system tells us, Okay, from a discipline standpoint, it's really not that bad. Mm-hmm. You know, inflation peaked in June. It's starting to come down. I mean, there's lots of quantitative and trend following and um, 
and factor analysis that we do that allows us to, to sit back and process those, those emotions and go, okay, the world's not empty, you know, the world's not empty. Right. Yeah. We would have much bigger problems um, if it actually was. And I, I think I want, I want to, before we like move into a discussion of like, what are you seeing right now? I want to, I want to open up this thing that you've said several times to me, we haven't said it here yet, but you know, this idea of just being in a diversified portfolio and what that actually resulted in, in a year like last year versus being in this more actively managed, more, um, more responsive. I mean, that's how it feels to me. It feels like we are actually responding um, to the situation as it changes, as, as things shifted throughout 2022, you know, we made really important decisions at, you know, those important inflection points that ended up being really great for our clients. And I think we need to talk a little bit more about that. What else? How do you want to approach that? Well, let me let me just talk about diversification in general, because I think this is one of the most misunderstood terms that our industry throws around. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of clients understand what it means, um, because, again, I think there's a disconnect between how what they what they um, define diversification as and what the industry defines diversification. And so diversification to juncture and to us is um, putting together independent sources of return. Okay. Now let's parse that out a little bit. So people understand what that really means. There you go. Yeah. Uh, It means uh, if you have two investments and they don't move together at the same time, then they're not correlated. So that means when one is going up, the other one is maybe staying stable. One is going down. The other one is maybe going up. Like they're, they're not, they're not rising and falling Correct. because of the same um, underlying circumstances. Yeah. Same economic event. Right. Right. So if they're both going up at the same time, they're positively correlated. If they're going down at the same time, they're positively correlated. If they're going in opposite direction, they're negatively correlated. Mm-hmm. But if they're if you can't predict which way they're going to move, it means there there's very little correlation. So um, our our definition is combining independent sources of return, meaning they they don't have a correlation. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now you can have more diversification by adding two investments together than having a thousand. Okay, because those thousand generally are positively correlated. Mm -hmm. So a lot of investment houses will come in and say, okay, you need some large cap stock. You need some small cap stock. You need some international stock. And in those percentages, usually it's going to be maybe 70 domestic US-based, 20 to 30% internationally based. And that's going to stay very consistent over the years. That's what they define diversification as. As investors have gone through different market stresses, they realize that they all move together down. 
Yeah. And, they, and, and that correlation gets, they go down a lot together. So what, what clients have intuitive, have, have defined diversification as, as in my experience, is diversification is supposed to mitigate those returns during those rough periods. It doesn't. That's the theory, right? <laughs> theory. It, it doesn't. And, and, it, it, and it really doesn't do, in the market stresses, it really doesn't do its job. Yeah. If, that, if that's really what the client is expecting, it does not do that job well. Okay. Um, what it does do is it smooths out returns over a very long period, i.e. lower your return than the top market, raise your return from the, the lowest market. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so that's true. It, over a long period of time, diversification kind of does work out a little bit. Problem is, is it can really damage the portfolio in, in when we go through these market stresses. Right. So what we determined to do, and I, I have been doing, I started um, developing this process when I was at that large bank, is trying to find another way that during those really dramatic, sustained market declines, equity market declines, how do we help one, people get through it emotionally? I think historically, advisors have had to put on a psychologist's hat a lot more than the financial advisory hat during those times. Yeah, agreed. I, yeah, I think it's <laughs> too much too much stress on advisors because investment managers have been a little lazy mm. because they haven't wanted to go forward and, and create new new uh, disciplines or new um, ways of, of offsetting these declines. So what we did is because the, these instruments were being created that we could do this um, is we've developed a hedging protocol whereby during large sustained market declines, we can offset a good portion of that, of that market decline. So that, that has a couple benefits. One, it just helps the client emotionally get through a rough period. Yeah. Right. So yeah. if, if the market's down 25% down last year and you're looking at your account and it's down 12, that's a little better because their buddy and their buddies are, are telling them they're down 20, 25. The news is saying everything is terrible mm -hmm. and they're looking down. They're like, okay, we're down a little bit. We can kind of get through this. Right. Two, the less their mark their 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 portfolio goes down, the less it needs to make up to get back to to break even. Right. Okay. So that's really critical because um, that is important for compounding purposes. So the math of how you generate return and how you develop term you know long term wealth, mm -hmm. you have to to lower that downside. Okay, you have to. Um, so, so that's the second reason. The third reason is you mentioned earlier is when the market stabilizes, we have a pot of cash that we then can deploy into cheap equities, equities right. that are on sale. It's just like when Cheerios go on, go on sale and you like Cheerios, you buy four boxes as opposed to one, right? It's the same, same price. price. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> see, see, it's the same with stocks. When they go on sale, generally you should be buying more of them. Right. Uh, the only time you wouldn't do that is if you think the long-term capacity of the economy that is in which it competes is uh, is declining. And that's that's the only other time. That has not happened in the history of the United States and really has not happened in the history of the world over the, the very, very long time. So long period. So I hope that helped. Did I miss anything there? No, I think that was... That was amazing, um, and I and it also goes to you know what what I want to touch on next, and we'll do this each time as well. Like in this last few minutes here, what's your what's your um, view of what's going on right now? What are the main factors? And I can tell you the main factors right that are um, all over the news. They're still talking about inflation. They're still talking about the um, the interest rate you know, hikes that may or may not be coming. What is your view of like the top things that we're looking at right now? Um, and which, you know, which direction they might go? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I, I kind of feel like um, we're in a market that is a little bipolarish, meaning that they're either, they're either extremely happy and the markets is, is going up in certain areas or it's getting, it, it's going, it's declining because everybody's so worried about a recession or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, and really within a day, you can have both, both, both periods. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 uh, it's a very interesting market in terms of, of where do you get the direction? Mm -hmm. I'll tell you my context uh, and then I'll tell you how we're, how we're, how we're managing this. One is, I believe the context is, um, as much as inflation was was a key theme for 2022, disinflation is going to be a key theme for 23 and 24. Um, inflation is coming down at a very rapid rate, and it just takes time. I mean, when you get to 9.1% inflation, it doesn't go to 2% very easily, and and the Fed has done a lot of work in terms of one inc increasing interest rates, but also shrinking their balance sheet, which is kind of the quiet policy being implemented behind the scenes. We don't really talk about it that much. You don't hear about it on TV because it doesn't necessarily impact the individual investor or household at a um, directly. Okay. Right. Whereas interest rates, hey. Interest rates go up by one percent. Your credit card just got become just became more expensive that next month. Right, your mortgage if you're buying a house, right, yeah. is being. Yep. Yeah. Now you're looking for fifty thousand dollars less expensive house because mortgage rates just went up. Right. Um, so, so that context of disinflation is is really important because yes, they're going to continue to raise interest rates, um, but I think. I think disinflation is going to catch them a little bit by surprise. Um, if you look at the instantaneous rate of inflation, which is there's a lot of averaging techniques in the inflation rate that they, they announce. Um, and those averaging techniques can keep it a little more elevated for longer or a little lower for longer, depending on, on which way inflation is trending right now it's trending down. So it is keeping 
inflation a little higher than it really is today. Mm. So you have impacts from housing prices that really did very, very well in 21 and early 22. That is still flowing into some of the data. Okay. So rental and rent rents are, are going up or have been have been showing they've been going up, but really last month rents have come down a little bit. So there's a dichotomy between what's happening this month versus what this, the CPI or the uh, consumer price inflation indicator is showing. Now, so instantaneous rate of inflation is already showing uh, around a 2%, 2 to 3% level. Um, and so it's, I think disinflation for this year is gonna be the key theme which means I think the Fed is eventually going to stop and they're going to pause. Stop and pause raising interest rates too. Interest rates will be stable until we see something really negative happen in the economy. Meaning if the unemployment rate starts to jump up, lots more layoffs start to happen. uh, Retail spending starts to really fall off a cliff. Until we see those type of events, um, I think they're just going to hold interest rates for the remainder of the year to see if they can get it down to that 2% level. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, the inflation swaps. So how's that for an exciting term for new? Yeah. New <laughs> All it is is a financial instrument that people use to, to, to forecast inflation. Betting on inflation going up or down, basically, right? Yep. So it's indicating a 2.5% inflation rate by the end of 23. It's probably wrong, but it may not be all that far off. So directionality is correct, right? Like coming down. The levels may be a little incorrect. They may be a little low, maybe a little high, but the the direction of that trend is really important. Additionally, you have the money supply, which has actually declined for the first time in a very, very long time. It has started declining, which means that liquidity is being taken out of the system, which means it's going to be less frothy in in that space because inflation was created because we had too much cash with too few goods, right? We had- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's open that up just a little bit. Inflation itself is- too many dollars chasing after too few goods, right? So there's the supply is low compared to how many dollars there are. And so we can see that really easily. The housing market is a perfect example of that. There weren't enough houses on the market for all the people wanting to buy them. So the prices went up. That is inflation. So disinflation, when you're saying there's less of that frothiness, less of that liquidity, Disinflation is saying that, all right, now the the supply is starting to level back out. The prices are now at a place where people are like, oh, I don't really want to pay that. So they're they're waiting. They're pulling back on the spending. Exactly. Exactly. So that's really important because when you have too much cash, too few goods, prices in, in the general economy go up. That's inflation. So we're, we're now starting to have you know on the, on the money supply side that's i.e liquidity too much money in the system well that's starting to go down so that is going to start raining in so 
that that side of the the inflation equation equation is starting to be solved. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the second part is the supply of goods. The supply chains, albeit they're not back to normal, are getting to be more normal than they have been since 19, 2019. Yeah. So, you know, China is 70% reopened, estimated about 70% reopened right now from the COVID lockdowns that they experienced earlier this year or uh, late last year. Um, so th- those goods, again, they're, they manufacture a lot of stuff for the world. So that is starting, th- that supply of goods is, is coming is becoming more and more consistent, which is what's really important for 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 that that side of the equation. Um, again, with the money supply side, you've got higher interest rates. You have quantitative easing. You have the money supply starting to go negative. Disinflation, I think, is going to be a key trend. Which means what? It means that by the end of the year, we expect equities to be to to have a really decent year. Mm-hmm. Okay, a really decent year, even with Earnings expectations starting to come down. I think everybody kind of already expects earnings to come down to a certain extent. Um, that so, means how much companies are actually posting as profit. Yes. Right. So yeah. If corporate profits come down. Everybody kind of expects that, right? I mean, there's a big chunk of us that believe we're going to have a recession, which means lots of people are going to lose their jobs and companies are going to earn a lot less. Well, that's somewhat expected already in the markets, um, albeit, you know, with the, the recent run-up um, that, that probably has abated somewhat. Um, so I think the major, uh, so I think equities are going to do well. However, the first half this year, I believe, is going to be extremely volatile. And the reason why is because what the Fed is saying and what the markets are te- are, are saying are very, very different right now. Right. Ugh, yeah. Someone has to give in. <laughs> it's so interesting. And we'll so we're gonna we're gonna pause on that and next time. Next time okay. we'll talk more about that because that's one of the questions I have all the time. Right. Like I, I I'm like, Brad, why the Fed is saying this thing and then the market is doing this. Like why are they why does it seem like they're disconnected right now? Um, and when you answer me and you're like, oh, no, you're right. There's something they're not acting quite in in a lockstep like they maybe should be. Um, Very different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, OK, it's like what you're hearing. You're hearing like the market is hearing what it wants to hear, even though the Fed is like clearly saying um, that they plan to keep increasing interest rates. Right. Uh, so we'll talk more about that next time, because I think that will be a a continuing theme, um, probably forever, but at least for this year. Uh, so I would love to absolutely thank you for being on the podcast with me. I'm so excited to have this conversation on a monthly basis. And um, listeners, if if you want to hear more, like literally, if you're like, no, once a month is definitely not enough, um, leave a comment. Let me know. Let me know if you want to have more of this. Um, and we'll figure it out. Cause that's what we do. Um, but Brad, thank you for spending time with me today. Oh, thank you for the invitation. And I appreciate it. I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. So again, if any, if any listeners have any other questions or comments, um, there's lots of things that Hannah and I can do with this. So 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Just keep, and like, send your, send your questions in too. Like that's really important for this, for this, um, segment. Um, if you have questions of like, why do I keep hearing about this? That's a beautiful opportunity for you to send those questions and we can, we can talk about, it. we can even start a Q and a portion, right? Like listeners are asking this, like, let's have Brad talk about it and Hannah talk about it. Um, so yeah, this is, this is the start of a new thing. So let's, let's create, what we want to create with it. It's exciting. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, Brad. We'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at expansiveceo.com. And tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, you can find ways to work with me at expansiveceo.com and at xsquaredwealthplanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, wealthplanning.com. So until next time, remember that there is enough, you are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive.